So a couple of nights ago, Carla gave us that wonderful image of our awakened nature as a sprout that is has managed to push its way through the concrete of all of the stuff that gets in the way of our awakening just the way once in a while a sprout does make it through the concrete and for me this is a particularly powerful image because as most of you know I spend quite a bit of time on the volcano on the big island where I often see the first little sprouts coming up through the lava after there's been a lava flow And it's amazing to me that these plant beings can do that, that they have that much strength. And, you know, after after a lava flow, it looks sort of like a bad parking lot around the volcano. (laughs) And, And here are these little things that, unless there's another lava flow, of course, will ultimately turn into a forest again. And so it's a marvelous image for this process of awakening that is just working so hard to happen. Some of you, I know maybe many of you, um, saw up in the Enchanted Forest area the sign about the, um, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha in a previous life, giving himself to the hungry tigress. And there are many, many, many such stories about the lives of the Buddha before he became the Buddha, so when he was just, if you will, a bodhisattva. And so he came in many, many different ways, as a parrot and as an ox and as a deer and different kinds of people, and different things happened to him along the way. And it's very clear that these many lifetimes are a mythic way of telling us about how much training it takes to wake up completely. All the different kinds of experiences that happen. And it is said that long before all of those lifetimes, way back in some other eon, you know, a long, long time ago, far, far, far away, one of those kinds of things, there um, was another Buddha. And there was, during that time, a monk whose name was Sumedho, just as our Ajahn Sumedho's name. And one day he heard that the Buddha was coming to town. And so, you know, he wanted to see him sort of like going to see the Dalai Lama, I think. And so he went, and he got alongside the road, and it was kind of a wet and drippy and yucky day, and he realized that the Buddha, if he followed the path that it looked like he was going to follow, was going to have to get his feet wet. And so it is said that Sumedho laid himself down in the pathway of the Buddha so the Buddha would have something dry to walk on, And in that moment, he was so touched at the presence of this enlightened being that he vowed that he would do what it took lifetime after lifetime in order to come back as a Buddha. And so it is said that that monk was the precursor of the Buddha whom we read about and study. So these are wonderful images. You can take them to be fact, if you'd like, or you can take them to be a mythic way of saying, you know, this is, this is a huge thing to become awakened. It takes, it takes eons of work. So we've come to the last day of this retreat, and often the last day brings up a certain amount of questioning in the mind and the heart what's going to happen next. (laughs) So when I go back, 
<coughs> to my husband, my wife, my cat, my job, my email, my phone messages, my kids, whatever it is for you, you know, how am I going to do it? And even if you've done this a number of times, sometimes that just makes it scarier because you kind of know what, what you're in for. And so how, how will I live when I leave this retreat? Will I have changed? Has this time that we've spent together, sitting and walking, done any good at all? You know, or is it just going to be the same old, same old? And usually, if you're like me anyway, um, when you get to the end, you go, okay, when I go back, I'm going to clean up my calendar and not be so busy. That's, that's a common one. Or whatever it is you're going to do. You're going to sit more, or you will clear your schedule so you can do a long retreat, you know, whatever a long retreat for you is. Or, or maybe just to be kinder. You know, this time the mind will really be different, and you will be a nicer person after the retreat. <laughs> And so, and sometimes it's the same vow, retreat after retreat after retreat. <laughs> so while we're here, we have quite regularly, beginning with the first night and every morning, spent a little time reflecting on our intention for being here. So you might take a moment now, remember what it was that got you to sign up for the retreat, whenever it was that you signed up. And, and intention is hugely important in the Buddhist understanding of things because it's the intention behind the action that creates the reverberation of the action, that creates the karma of that action. So it's setting a direction. It's really important to understand about intention that it's setting a direction. And... So it's important because it includes the notion that there are times when you're going in the wrong direction. You wander off course. And someone reminded me recently of, of a story that I've told about a pilot who was asked about, you know, how is it that you keep those airplanes on course all the way across the country, you know, or even all the way across the Pacific Ocean? And the pilot said, we're never on course. Isn't that interesting? We're never on course. We're always adjusting a little bit this way, a little bit that way, a little bit back again, nope, a little bit further. And it's a constant adjustment. And that's what intention is like. Intention is what allows us to be constantly adjusting in our lives so that we continue to go in the direction that we're wanting to go in. So today I suggested that you walk the pilgrimage walk with the eight verses of thought transformation, which is a Tibetan text that's posted up there, and then it has the commentary by the Dalai Lama. And so these are eight instructions for working with the mind. And some of you I know didn't go up there, but I trust you were able to find the text that Marcy left in the dining room and, and look at it there. And, you know, it's a text that starts with this incredible verse, you know. It says, Determined to obtain the greatest possible benefit from all sentient beings who are more precious to me than a wish-fulfilling jewel, I shall hold them most dear at all times. So, you know, somebody wrote me a note and said, this, this whole thing sounds so impossible. <laughs> How could it possibly be? And, you know, the intentions, I mean, if you think about intention in the text, I mean, look at this monk, Sumedho. You know, he's lying there in the mud, the Buddha's walking over him, and he says, I'm going to be a Buddha, no matter what it takes. I mean, this is crazy. This is crazy to set that kind of intention. It seems almost presumptuous, really, to do that. And, you know, in Zen, there's that, that vow that is often taken at the beginning of sitting periods. You know, beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. 
you know, that's huge. All those numberless beings. Or there's a, a verse from Shantideva that the Dalai Lama particularly likes that ends, for as long as space endures and as long as sentient beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. This is a long time. <laughs> a long, long time. As long as space endures. Mm. You know. Or there's a teaching that I'm particularly fond of that a number of you have heard about in which every being is supposed to be your teacher. Every being is doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up. They're so utterly beyond our reach. Why would we even create that kind of intention? You know, what are we thinking? <laughs> what are we thinking? But, so the Dhammapada, to go back to some of the early texts, says, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts, we make the world. Okay, you be the judge. You've just been watching for five days. What do you think about being what you think? You know, it's not great in there a lot of <laughs> just not. So maybe it really needs transformation. You know, maybe walking this path at the end of a retreat is probably a good idea because by then you know, you know, okay, it probably really does need changing, even if it seems so completely impossible. And I've, you know, I've walked that trail a lot now. Bob and I walked it again this afternoon. And I always, it's like I get to this verse or that verse and I go, oh, it is just so challenging. And maybe important to say, you know, it's true, they come from another lineage of practice, they come from the Tibetan lineage. But even in the Thai Theravadan lineage, there is the notion of the ideal of a bodhisattva coming and serving all beings. So it's not foreign to our practice. So in that first verse, you know, the, the, he, the author points to holding these beings most dear at all time, all of these precious beings. And the Dalai Lama, in his commentary, notices that we are completely interconnected with these beings, you know, both as as we walk the path and then later on, you know, if, if we do attain some level of waking up, then, you know, the, the beings around us benefit from that. And we arise moment to moment utterly dependent on everything else. And this is this is not just a Buddhist notion. This is a notion that fits with our, our ideas of modern physics, how incredibly interconnected. And Bob talked last night about how, you know, the atoms, they're just there. And they assemble themselves for a while, this <coughs> mysterious event that calls itself life and a human birth, and, and they're energized. It's like an eddy in a river, in a way. And the eddy shows up as Mary Grace or Carla or Bob or one of you. And then after a while, it dissipates, right? It stops happening. And then the atoms disperse again. But they don't go away. They just float around for a while, I guess. And then something comes along and they reassemble maybe as a tree or a raven or a mountain lion, you know? And I was paying attention to one of the ravens the other day and at, at, up at our house that we have ravens and also blue jays and there was a blue jay nest one year and the raven used to go and help himself to baby blue jays mm. and um, we called it the baby jay diner <laughs> <laughs> but you know I had this interesting thought about Here's this baby Jay who gets eaten, and all of a sudden the consciousness discovers he's not a blue Jay anymore, he's a raven. Well, maybe it's okay, I don't know. I don't know. He definitely got reassembled as raven and not as a blue Jay. 
So the teaching points us to the notion that these beings are not separate from ourselves. They are not separate. And the way to actually benefit is to treat each being as a precious jewel, a really precious jewel a diamond or a sapphire or an emerald or whatever kind of jewel you particularly like. And that's how it's suggested that you treat the beings around you. It's very like the teaching of the golden rule. You know, teach others as you would like to be treated. We'd all like to be treated as precious jewels. It's wonderful to have someone who, or several someones, who hold you that way. And often when the Dalai Lama's teaching, he goes on to say, And of course the thing is, you're not just treating them as you would like to be treated, you're treating them as you would want to be treated because they are you. You aren't separate from them. It's all interconnected. So everything that you do affects everyone. So it becomes very, very obvious why you would want to do this. pretty easy. You know, I look around the room tonight, and most of you I know pretty well. Some of you I've just met. And um, you all look pretty jewel-like tonight, actually, a little (laughs) shiny and and glowing. And and it's, you know, as I've watched all of us in these last few days and seen how this, how a community like this can be such a refuge and such a support, it seems pretty obvious why we might want to do this and and how it would be helpful. So then, in the second verse, he says, When in the company of others I shall always consider myself the lowest of all, and from the depths of my heart hold others dear and supreme. So this is not an easy instruction. Who among us wants to be the lowest? That's not how we were trained, right? You're supposed to come out on top. We like to be right. Um, We like to get the A and the first prize, and we like to be in charge. And most of us like to control things. I am speaking a lot out of myself at the present moment. (laughs) But, you know, I mean... Pretty much everybody I meet, if you talk to them for a while, sooner or later someone will say, well, you know, I'm kind of a control freak. And you don't very often meet somebody who says, you know, I don't really ever care about controlling anything. <laughs> <laughs> People just don't say that. We all want to control things. And, and, and you know, we, we're, Americans tend to be a little swaggerish, right? We like to swagger around a bit and... And we think that our way is the best way. It took me years to figure out, years, that maybe other countries just might want to do it a different way, which was perfectly fine. It wasn't how I was raised. And I remember last year when Deborah was here from New Zealand, and she was telling me about how some of the New Zealand folks sometimes respond to American teachers coming through with saying things like, oh, no. Not another American here to tell us what to do. So we sort of have a reputation. And so this verse is really saying, what happens if you enter a situation with the notion that you're going to serve? Someone said, well, how would you teach this verse to a child in one of the notes? And I think that's really what you would talk about, is that, that how is it that we can go into our lives with the notion of service? That we are really here to serve other beings and that we're here to help find freedom and an ending of suffering for all of the other beings. <coughs> One of the images that I love is an image that comes from the practice of Aikido. And you know, in Aikido, the notion is, often when, we, when you think of a Um, an encounter with an opposing force, you usually kind of think of them coming together like this, you know, and they bang at each other Mm -hmm. like boxers or something. And in Aikido, the notion is that as you face the opponent, the notion is that you get big and spacious 
And then you move in a way so that the whole system moves to a safe place. No, no one person being on top and the other defeated, but everyone is safe. So just imagine for a moment, supposing that is what had happened in Iraq. Just supposing. It would be so different from what it is now. We don't think that way in our world. But it's very clear that it would make a huge difference if we began to. However, in order to know what is really beneficial for everyone, it's also important to see really clearly. And so in the third verse, he says, vigilant, the moment a delusion appears in my mind, endangering myself and others, I shall confront and avert it without a delay. Of course, there's a catch here, right? Because if you're deluded, you don't always see the delusion when it arises in your mind. So let's just honor that because it's a tricky place. And know that sometimes it takes a while before you realize that the delusion is there in your mind. But you know, thinking, this notion that we're on top is a delusion. Some years ago, I was visiting in the Exploratorium up in San Francisco, and they have in there, in one of the rooms, um, something that's called the MacArthur Map of the World. And in the MacArthur Map of the World, guess what? (laughs) Antarctica is on the top, (laughs) along with Australia and New Zealand and the tip of Africa and South America and the Arctic is on the bottom and you know we're not too much farther up from the bottom in that map and it's very strange to look at it's a wonderful thing and I stood there just blown away thinking how much of how we understand ourselves as a culture is based from the delusion that we're on top Because what's top? There's no top to the world. There's just no top. Maybe it's sideways. Maybe it's spinning around and around like that. You know? Because it's just a convention because of space that we put the North Pole on top and the South Pole on the bottom. But there's nothing inherently true about it. Or as a race we often consider ourselves to be the pinnacle of evolution. It's all been about getting where we are now. And we don't so often think that maybe we're just the current version of the dinosaurs. (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen next, or if anything's going to happen next. If we mess it up badly enough, maybe nothing will. So it's, it's an interesting place to begin to see that there's some very deep um, elements of how we understand ourselves that are inherently deluded, that are inherently deluded. So here you are, you've been sitting, you know, you're not worried about the maps of the world and you're not really thinking much about evolution, I don't imagine. Um, but you've probably been thinking some about your stories. Is there anybody who hasn't had any stories? Right? <laughs> and there's lots of stories that happen at retreats. You know, Some of them are stories about your life at home. Sometimes you come here and, of course, you fall in love with, you see the perfect being of whatever flavor you like. Or if you don't fall in love, then of course there's the other kind of thing that happens, the vendetta that we talked about the other day, (laughs) where someone does something that you don't like and it just drives you nuts for the whole retreat. And you know, sometimes you're gonna, I shouldn't tell you this, sometimes we see people moving around the hall. You know, they start over here, and they move over there, and then they move over here, and then they move over there, and you know, you just know. 
you know, there's something that's going on that's making more. Makes you wonder. So if that's if that's you, we, we saw you. <laughs> And, you know, there's there's all the stories of the teachers that we thought were saints and wonderful, and then it turns out, you know, they were sleeping with their students, or they were misusing their power, or they were taking all the money from the center that they were teaching at, or whatever, where someone, you know, isn't what they seem to be. And... And every one of us has fallen in love with someone that was inappropriate and where we didn't see so clearly. I've often told the story of a time about 15 years ago when I fell in love and and I was married to the man I'm married to now. And I thought I was really clear. I thought I was I just had to do this, was really right. And there were only two or three people who were brave enough to tell me I was deluded. (laughs) And it's actually a little scary when I look back on it now because um, I can put on, I can sound clear even when I'm not. You might want to think about this talk a little. (laughs) 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 And, And I thought I was clear, but I wasn't. I was so deluded. The problem with the unconscious is that it's unconscious. You know, and delusion can completely blind us. So when you find it, when someone says to you, you know, you might want to think about that, or you begin to just even that little question comes in the mind. Maybe I'm not seeing clearly, and what this teaching says is rooted out. You know, dig in, find it, and try to get it away so that you can see without that particular blinder or lens on. So then the fourth verse. Whenever I see beings who are wicked in nature and overwhelmed by violent negative actions and suffering, I shall hold such rare ones dear as if I had found a precious treasure. I was actually surprised nobody wrote me a note about this verse. Not one person. So maybe you're all transforming your minds and I don't need to be giving this talk. I don't know. But it's such a powerful verse because, you know, that's not how we normally respond to wicked beings whoever it is, you know, it might be the political people that you love to hate, I won't mention any names, <laughs> but, you know, and you think, shouldn't, shouldn't these people just somehow go away, you know, and then I remember somebody last year telling me that they had, well, I will tell you this name, they had a picture of Dick Cheney on their altar, because she was, I think it was a she, was really working at having meta for this very very difficult person. And so we often, you know, encounter people who are doing difficult things and harmful things. And it's certainly important to oppose what they're doing and to oppose their actions. And it's also important not to close them out of our hearts because that just creates, that's that us and them place again. And then you have a war again, and it just continues the whole thing. So it's, it's a very, very difficult practice, I think, this thing of, of trying to, um, to hold someone like this in our hearts. But as the Dalai Lama says, you know, when we exclude an entire group of people, those, whoever they are, and we see them as being a problem, then often what happens is we marginalize them and we polarize, we create them and us, and it just increases the suffering instead of making it less. 
And so we don't find a way under those circumstances in which we can relate to them so that there can be some healing and change and transformation for everyone. It's really the Aikido image again. You know, How do we move the whole system to a safe place? So then in the fifth verse, he says, when out of envy others mistreat me with abuse, insults, or the like, I shall accept defeat and offer the victory to others. So this is hard, because we don't like losing, and we don't like defeat, and we don't like it when we don't get our way. And it's hard when we make a mistake and we've been defeated that way. You know, it seems you know, not right and it isn't how we've been raised. And, and what the Dalai Lama said, I thought quite wisely in his commentary, if you read it, is that um, he said, you know, this is, this is particularly useful practice when it's small defeats. You know, and that because what it does is it trains us not to react out of our age and anger. And, and so he says, you know, if nobody else is going to be hurt, it's not a big deal. Then sometimes it's actually really helpful to just go, oh, okay, you know, I'm outvoted or everyone else wants it differently. And so we'll let it go. And he says, the purpose of this practice is to achieve a great result through undertaking small losses. And it's quite interesting, I think, to do this, you know, to begin to experiment with it. And it's not about... um, It's not about, you know, it's really good to lose. It's not about, about... Placing yourself really at the at the bottom, in the sense of you know let everybody walk over you. But it's more about training ourselves so that we we're really always looking what's for the benefit of the whole, what's for the benefit of the system. So it can be, you know, really skillful to give up on our own agenda and. A situation, and or even when people have said unkind things about us or about what we want, and it seems to me that maybe one of the good places to really begin with this um, is that place when we when we make mistakes and and we get we sort of are defeated that way as well. You know, when it becomes very obvious to us that oh, I blew it. You know, and to be able to say I'm sorry. You know, I made a mistake, and it was wrong, and I shouldn't have said it, or I shouldn't have done it. And, and, and maybe to say I'm sorry several times, to really apologize. It's been interesting to me. Some of you, I know, think I probably have a few things to learn on this one, but, um, <clears throat> you know, to really experiment. Sometimes I do this mostly with Russell, really, really apologizing if I've done something bad over and over again. And, as many of you know, he and I have this practice called dead bug, which is what we do when we really want to grovel. And so if I've done something really, really bad, or if he has, then he'll lie down on his back on the floor and put his arms and legs in the air like a dead bug. And he usually lies there and he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And of course, I, then I laugh, right? And and so I laugh, and then, you know, I'm not so mad at him anymore, and I get it that he's sorry. And it actually works very nicely in terms of, of healing whatever has happened. So then in verse 6, he goes on to say, When someone whom I have benefited and in whom I have great hopes gives me terrible harm, I shall regard that person as my holy guru. I noticed that one of the first notes I made on this is I think this verse is particularly for parents. When all these little beings that we put so much time and energy in and then they turn against you. You It's that first moment my younger daughter went through this not all that long ago when the first time they glare at you and say, I hate you, mommy. 
and it's like your heart just breaks, you know. And and in that moment, this child is your teacher. You're teaching you something. Mary Oliver has a poem. Um, it's called The Uses of Sorrow, and the, and the subtitle or the description, she says, In my sleep I dreamed this poem, which I think is sort of astounding. And she says, Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. Mm. It took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Mm. That this too was a gift. So, you know, we have all kinds of people. They've probably been here with you as you've sat during this retreat, the people who break our hearts one way or another, and sometimes they've actually harmed us. And he's suggesting that in some way we can take this as a teaching. We can, we can again, learn how to keep the heart open even while we also learn to protect ourselves. And I always think, again, of you know, all the Tibetan lamas who've come out of China and who talk about how one of their greatest fears when they were in prison was that they would lose their compassion for their guards and for the people who were torturing them. That they understood that in some way they could use these people to open their hearts over and over again. The Dalai Lama also talks about that in terms of the Chinese. He talks about them as my friends, the enemy, and how much they have taught him by um, being the way that they have been, the communist Chinese, with the Tibetan people. So then in the last verses, he, in the seventh and eighth verses, in short, both directly and indirectly do I offer every happiness and benefit to all my mothers. In, in the Tibetan way of understanding things, all beings at one time or another have been your mother in some lifetime. So you can look around the room, all your moms are, are here, and you've been a mom to everybody here. Um, I shall secretly take upon myself all their harmful actions and suffering. Undefiled by the stains of the superstitions of the eight worldly concerns, may I, by perceiving all phenomena as illusory, be released from the bondage of attachment. Hmm. So he's saying that, you know, not to get caught by the eight worldly dharmas, by praise and blame, loss and game, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. These are the things that sort of keep us sort of caught in the world. And that we can, in fact, by this amazing practice of opening our hearts and really taking in the suffering of other beings and then extending our kindness and compassion to them, this is the way that we can really, really deeply change our mind. Carla talked the other night about Deepama, you know, this little tiny four-foot-tall Indian um, teacher who was so powerful and someone once described her as meta on steroids. <laughs> and so this is, again, another of my favorite descriptions of her um, that was written by Father Theophane right after she died. He said, what is your heart like? That's what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me, even me. How did I get there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what mm. will they find? Mm. <laughs> so, how on earth do we do this? This is huge. How could we have a heart that would have all of those beings? How can we take these really difficult people as our 
as our teachers, how do we transform our minds and even more, even more difficult, perhaps, our thoughts. And so this is actually, I think, where what you've just been doing comes in. You know, the hours on the cushion and on retreat, the place where if you're going to change it, you actually have to see what the situation is, right? So the good news is you've seen what the situation is, which maybe feels like bad news, but it's actually good news. So you have some sense of how crazy the mind is and how strong the stories are and how stubborn they are and how they just stick, you know. And so there's some things that we begin to see when we practice. So one of the things we often begin to see is that place where every time we get centered on I and me and mine, we create suffering. It's a painful place to be when it's all about me and what I want and what I have and don't have. And often when we that I, me, mind place gets really tight, we have some really strong stories about who it is that we are that we hold on to. I'm the kind of person <coughs> who. A really dangerous story. And they're often fairly limited stories and kind of tight and rigid and it almost always ensures that out of that place of who it is that we are, we will be reactive because you have to hold on to it and defend it and protect it. And so this teaching really demands that we begin to let go of that. That you really begin to give your attention to your experience to see, does this strong thing that you think is you, does it even really exist? Is it there? You know, to begin to let go of it, to come to that place where we don't know. You know, that wonderful koan that I love where the Emperor Wu was asked, you know, who are you standing there? And he says, I don't. Asked, he asked um, Bodhidharma, who are you? And he, Bodhidharma says, I don't know. I don't know. How do we not know? What would it be to sit here? You could do it. You've got some sittings left. And don't know. It's a great practice. I totally recommend it. You know, ask yourself the question. Who are you? And then answer. (coughs) Haven't got a clue. And then sit there for a while, not having a clue. And then try it again. And see what happens as you, just for a little bit, don't hold on so tightly to who it is that you are. That's a step towards becoming this much bigger, much more spacious being that really can hold all of these other beings as jewels and as teachers. So we each really are bodhisattvas in training. You may not have said, okay, I'm going for it, I'm going to be a bodhisattva. Some of us have taken that vow. (coughs) Or you may not have said, I don't know anybody who's done this one, okay, I'm going to be a Buddha. But it may just be that they don't talk about it, which is probably true if they've really said it. Um, But, you know, each one of you is working with that little sprout, you know, to wake up. You want that. You've come here. Often, when I've sat with Jack Cornfield at the end of retreats, and maybe we'll play with it tomorrow, I don't know, he does this wonderful exercise where, you know, there you are, you're in your life, you're with your family or you're at work, and it's difficult as it always is, and then there's a knock at the door, and you go to the door, and it's the Buddha or Guan Yin or the Blessed Mother, whatever being of your choice that and they say, okay, come out here, and okay, I'm going to trade bodies with you. And then the Buddha goes in and does your life for a few minutes, or Guan Yin. And often as the visualization goes on, people see, you know what they see. They see that the Buddha knows how to be with their difficult colleague way better than they know how to be. But then, of course, Jack always likes to point out, well... Where did this Buddha come from that you just imagined having this conversation with your colleague? And of course, people kind of usually get this funny look on their face. So we won't do this tomorrow because now I'm giving it all away. (laughs) And and they go, oh, I knew. 
So it's in there. You know, it's in there, this little mm-hmm. sprout that can, can behave in this way. You know, we can work with holding a really difficult person in your heart. You may think you're lousy at it. I often do. How can I possibly send metta to this person? I grit my teeth and I do it anyway because I'm a good kid and I teach this and I'm supposed to do it. (laughs) But that's part of the training. You do it anyway. You do the best you can to hold that person in your heart. And gradually, gradually... Some days I go, oh, that does feel a little better, you know? And often, if you do it long enough, and I've heard many, many stories about this, the situation becomes easier, and it's at least not so polarized, because you're holding them in your heart. Or you work, you really work at those delusions, you know? And and you find one, and you go, oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm going to stop thinking that way. You know, I, for a while I got one of those maps and I stuck it up where I could see it just to reflect on the fact that we weren't physically on top to just let that soak into my bones a little bit or we can work with some place where we have been defeated how is it to accept it and to soften and to let go and maybe you let go a little bit and then you grab on again and then you let go a little bit, and you grab on again. So that's how it goes. And gradually, gradually, if you're lucky and you keep practicing it, you know, you can actually let go. Or, you know, your your beloved, your child that you've raised is being difficult. I had a daughter who was in treatment for drug and alcohol addiction for a while. That was a really big teaching when that happened many years ago now. It was really tough. And it was a challenge for me. She was really a teacher. And she and the, all this 12-step work and all of that that we all did together, and she was really my teacher for that time. And a lot of opening happened for our whole family around that period. We don't... It's not like you decide, okay, I'm going to be a bodhisattva. Yeah, I'll sign up, I'll take the bodhisattva vow, and then you're a bodhisattva. <laughs> I wish, you know, it would be so great if it would happen. But it isn't. It's just one of those things that we just gradually, gradually, gradually begin to work at. And at the same time, it's really important not to get puffed up because you're doing it. Now, it doesn't make you anybody really special to be doing this bodhisattva vow. In fact, you'll do it better if it's kind of secret and hidden. I remember one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, who has founded the school called the Ridwan School and teaches the Diamond Approach. And he said, you know, one of the best ways to be a spiritual teacher is to live in suburban California in a perfectly ordinary house and live what looks like a perfectly ordinary life and just not be anybody very special. So I invite you to reflect on this and to think about you know, practicing it. And there's, there is a line, I think it actually does come from 12-step work, that says, fake it till you make it, mm-hmm. you know, where you, where you do the best you can. And there's, you know, a teaching that sometimes if you, you know, you don't feel compassion or you don't feel kindness, but you do it anyway. You just do it anyway. And you begin just where you are. One tiny, tiny act at a time. One really (coughs) small thing. And then gradually you begin to add more and more to that. You know, having that sense of intention, that big view, you know, understanding how utterly interconnected we are, even if you don't you can't quite figure out how it works, but that doesn't matter. Just understanding that and understanding that it's possible, you know, as Bob's teacher said, it's possible to wake up, you know, and and maybe we're not as far up the stream as he is or was, but we're all headed in that direction, you know, from our respective puddles and rivulets, you know, we're headed in that that way. 
and and then working with our actions in our lives. You know, there's a there's an instruction to let your actions be as fine as barley flour and your view to be as vast as the sky. Mm. So real, really fine attention to these little, little things because of this big view. And that's what, in the end, gets us there. So I thought I would read to you, if I can find it again, verses from Shantideva, which I can probably just say, but I'd rather have the paper in front of me. (laughs) So this is the Bodhisattva vow from Shantideva. It's a text that um, is often used when the Dalai Lama teaches, and it's, it's a verse that I say every day as part of my practice. And um, I'll put it up on the bulletin board in the dining room in case any of you like it and want it. With a wish to free all beings, I shall always go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha until I reach awakening. Filled with wisdom and compassion, today in Buddha's presence, I generate the mind of awakening for the sake of all sentient beings. For as long as space endures, and as long as sentient beings remain, until then may I too abide to dispel the misery of the world. Mm. So just stay where you are. Let's just breathe together for a moment. Thank you very much for listening to the Dharma, and please enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.